Well, it's my privilege to be sharing with you uh, from God's Word this morning as we begin a, a new message series for the months of June and July. As we can all attest, it's, it's taken summer a, a little while to get here, but soon enough we'll, we'll come those days, as the meteorologists say, of abundant sunshine. It'll be warm and it will be hot. If you're, the out, if you're outside in this type of, of weather, you know, there's, there's nothing better than having your, your favorite thirst-quenching drink beside you. Maybe it's a, a glass of sweet and tart lemonade, that electrolyte-fueled Gatorade, or maybe it's just good old-fashioned water. The beverage that you're drinking replenishes your body for you to be able to continue doing what you're doing to continue moving forward. It's, it's this type of experience that brings into the, the, the new message series entitled Summer Refreshers. As we go throughout life, it's, it's really common for, uh, to find ourselves needing some rehydration from God's Word. The same, the same God who, who loves us who loves us so much that he gave his son to die on a cross for us. You know, we were created to drink out of God's word. We were created to be fueled, to feed off of God's word. Uh, when, when Jesus was baptized, after he was baptized, he went out into the desert where he, he fasted for 40 days and, and alongside of him came Satan and, and Satan tried to tempt him with several different things, but, but one of which was bread. And in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus responds, Is it written, man shall not live by bread alone? but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So seeing that we were created to be strengthened, to be refreshed by God's word, let's find ourselves refreshed by the hope that God gives to us. Even though I was born and, and, and raised and grew up in the state of Missouri, it wasn't until I was probably about a teenager that I finally asked my mom why every license plate on every car had the words, show me state. She shared that, you know, not as a generalization, but some people from Missouri tend to be cynical. They, they don't trust many people. They don't put their hopes in what people say. After doing a little research uh, for the first time uh, about this this last week, I, I discovered that, uh, that Missouri, the show me state, was, is, is, uh, that saying is given credit to the U.S. Congressman William Van Diver in 1899 when he shared with the U.S. House Committee, Committee on Navals of, Naval Affairs these words, I come from a state that raises corn, cotton, cockleburs, and Democrats. Frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. But that mindset certainly extends beyond the borders of Missouri, doesn't it? And it also extends throughout time. Our second lesson today comes from the book of Hebrews. We don't know the person that wrote Hebrews but we do know the author, the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews, this, this faith-filled person is writing to a suffering, persecuted group of Jews somewhere to the east of Israel. They had come out of their Jewish faith and, and had become 
followers of Jesus. Though because of this, they were ostracized by, by the people that they loved, some of which by their, their own people, by their own families, and they suffered greatly. So imagine, if you will, a bunch of new Christians who have lost so much tangibly for their newfound faith in a Savior that has done everything for them, who has fulfilled every aspect of the law that they memorized growing up. It was a constant temptation for them to believe that a right relationship with God was by following a ceremonial law versus simply having faith in what Jesus had done for them. The Hebrews author wants to remind them and us, we can trust God. We can place our hope in him. The Holy, the Holy Spirit recalls for them their, their great forefather in whom they and we can be shown that we have a firm foundation of hope in God and his promises. In Hebrews 6.13, the author brings to mind promises made to Abraham. He says these words, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he, since God, had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you. Surely I will multiply you. Now, if you're, you're not too familiar with Abraham, this is a man that God used to begin building a, a nation of people, the Israelites, with, with whom God had a special covenant relationship with. Yet, when God came to Abraham, he was old. Scriptures say it time and time again, and Abraham was old. He was old, and he was childless. But God made a threefold promise to Abraham. One, I will make you into a great nation. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Two, I will give you a land of your own. And three, I will bless those who bless you, and I will conversely curse those who curse you. In Genesis twenty-two sixteen, where this story kind of unfolds, God says, I by myself have sworn this to those promises made. As, as the Hebrew writer points out, when someone swears by something, they usually swear by something greater than themselves, so that, if proven false, they may be at the mercy to that which they swore by. Yet God can't do this. There is nothing he is under. There is nothing that he has not created. So he swore by himself. What God is giving to Abraham is an ultra-secured gift. First, God is giving him a promise, and now he is swearing an oath to it. This oath is made on the very character, on the very fabric, on the very reputation of God and who he is. And how did it turn out for Abraham? Verse 15 tells us, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham was 75 years old when God made a promise and an oath to him. He was 100 years old when that child came. For 25 years, Abraham waited, what I like to say, in the gap. 
As you can imagine, each year that went by, it would have been harder and harder for him to understand, to see how God was going to build a nation through him. How many nights would he probably shake his fists at the sky saying, God, I'm not getting any younger. And yet, while Abraham was not perfect in his patience, in his waiting, God was perfect in his promise. And Isaac, his son, was born. So what does that teach us? What does that teach recently converted Jews? It teaches us a lot. The Hebrews author wants them and wants us to know that in Jesus, God has promised us all things. Jesus' work on the cross did away with the ceremonial law. Their righteousness, your righteousness, is not and cannot be found in following the law. We can't do it. But it has been fulfilled. Because of the work of Christ, it has been done. This you can place your hope in. You don't have to wonder. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I hear things people say, I hear people say things in groups. For some reason, I, I've heard a number of people say, I sure hope I get to heaven. Friends, God's promise is for you that when your faith and trust are found in the work and person of Jesus, you have hope. Salvation is yours. And yet there's Satan. He loves to live in the gap. He did it for Abraham. He does it for us. That's where it seems like he, he does some of his best work. What, what do I mean by that? He loves to place doubt. He loves to place confusion in our hearts that go against the promises of God from the time they are given to the time they are fulfilled. And it's important that we, that we call out these enemies of hope. Fatigue as we go through life's daily grind and, and, and loss of success, certainly are enemies of the hope that Jesus gives to us. That's what was happening to the recipients of the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews. The persecution that the Hebrews were facing was starting to make them question the work of Jesus, which leads us to another way that Satan works. Placing our hope, placing our identity placing our joys in, in other people, in another person, putting our hope in a government or, or a political ideology. Maybe your hope is placed on, on what you can do, on what you can accomplish. And you, at times, maybe feel like echoing the sentiments of the author Arthur Miller, who, who wrote the likes of Death of a Salesman and The Crucible, who said, I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside oneself. What a sad commentary. And, and yet, we at times place our hope on the things that we've done in our success, what might happen in, in a possible promotion or, or the university that we might get into or the, the sports team that we've gotten on. These are all the ways that Satan loves working in the gap. The time between Jesus' completed work of our salvation, his promise that we are heirs of the kingdom, and his ultimate return. It just might be prudent for us to sit down sometime and make a list of the things that we find ourselves putting our hope and putting our joy in. What is it for you?
if we're putting our hope in anything outside of the promises of God, then newsflash, they're going to disappoint us. And not only will they disappoint us, but if we find our hope in things that have less meaning, less purpose than what is given to us, then our lives will have less meaning and less purpose. But you see, on the contrary, God has created us for a grand purpose, a purpose that does not change according to Hebrews. You see, God knew that we would be a show-me people, So listen to these words in in verse 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That hope set before us is Jesus, is God in the flesh. You see, our hope is not based upon odds or probabilities. It's based upon promises of God. When he makes these promises, he will do them. These promises he has spoken over your life, and they will happen. Jesus will return. You are not condemned in Jesus Christ. You really are forgiven. You have an eternal hope. Therefore, he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our hope. He is worthy of our lives being lived out on a daily basis for his glory. Listen to how these verses conclude in in, uh, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest. Hebrews says this, this hope is an anchor for our soul. No matter what turmoil we face, no matter what storms we may encounter, the hope and promise of Jesus remain steadfast. In addition to this, the author says Jesus is a forerunner. I I love this term. A forerunner was a, a, a military reconnaissance man. He goes forward knowing that others will follow behind him. You can only be a forerunner if there are afterrunners behind you. Through Jesus' perfect life, through his death on the cross, and, and, and through his resurrection for us, he has prepared for us a path to the Heavenly Father. Hebrews reminds us that God's promises are sure and real. He has not forgotten about us, or should I say he has not forgotten about you. He has not abandoned you. And this is why he gave us his word, so that we, a show-me people, might see how God has time and time again fulfilled all that he said he would do. We have hope. But there's, there's one more connection I'd like to point out between what God did for Abraham and, and what he continues to do for us. You see, 
God made a promise to Abraham, and, and therefore it was it really was guaranteed. Some things were, were asked of Abraham. He, he was asked to, to move to a new land. But as far as, as carrying out the promise, the Bible says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And in the end, Abraham was a spectator to what God would do in and through him. God's purpose for Abraham was to bless the world with the promise that he gave to him. I'm going to repeat that again. God's purpose for Abraham was to bless the world with the promise that he gave to him. Friends, has God not blessed us with a promise, with a hope of Christ, a hope to be shared with the world? While God may not be calling us to, to father a nation in our advanced age, and I'm sure some of you are saying, thank you, God. <laughs> he is bringing his kingdom of hope to the world through us. We do this by, by joining Jesus and, and loving our neighbor just as Christ loved us. He calls us to, to be a blessing to our neighbor. In, in our uh, missional community this, this last week, we had a member who said that he has become more confident in asking the second question. He shared it's, it's the second question that, that really helps him connect with his neighbor. Hey, how are you doing? That's question one. Question two, hey, how is your family? I remember you telling me last week that they were having some problems. Now, through the second question, it has been directly conveyed to the recipient that someone cares for them, that someone is concerned about them, just like Jesus cares for us. Jesus is, is calling us to serve our coworkers, maybe even in a, a sacrificial way. And one of the best, absolute best apologetics to be a witness for Christ is to live simply with joy. Having joyful hearts and knowing what Jesus has done for us, that the promised Messiah is our Savior and our friend. We have hope. You see, we, we simply emulate the hope that God has shown us to a hurting world. And in doing so, they see the hope. They see hope and his name, and his name is Jesus. Now may the peace that surpasses understanding guard and protect your hearts as we await for our Savior and our hope to return. Amen.